I have a friend that I used to ride motorcycles with, and uh, the man loves speed. He laid his motorcycle down in Kentucky, by the way, and so his wife made him swear off. But I told him, Wayne, I've got to quit doing this because when I ride with you, five minutes into the ride, I'm 20 minutes behind. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, I kind of feel like that's how we started here. I'm already 20 minutes behind, and we just get started. But, but having said that, uh, I'm going to uh, pick the uh, narrative up. And uh, I tell you what, two weeks ago now, I introduced you to something which is absolutely pivotal for what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to go back very quickly. You remember we said that several weeks before the Passover, the fourth Passover of Jesus' public ministry, the Passover at which he will die, Jesus was in Perea. He was there because after he had been up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication and had said, I and the Father are one, he had had to flee to Perea. Remember, who is the, the, the ruler in Perea? Can you tell me? Herod Antipas. So he has fled over to Perea. Now, here's the thing, and this is what I want to use as sort of the basis for what we're going to talk about. Because I mentioned, I, we read the passage in, in Luke chapter 13, where while Jesus was there in Perea, some Pharisees came. Remember this? And they tried to lure him back into Jerusalem. They said, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said, I'm not worried about Herod, you go tell that fox, and so on. And then, from afar, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and in the course of that, he makes a promise. And it's a startling promise. Because he weeps over Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, this is Luke 31, uh, 13, 34, and 35. How oft would I have gathered you myself as a hen does a jigger? You would not. And then he says, see, your house is left unto you desolate. And then he says this, you'll not see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember all that? And that's out of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is, in fact, the psalm of messianic inauguration. That's the psalm that says, save now, Hoshana. That's the psalm that says, this is the day which the Lord has said. Remember we talked all about that? And so I said to you, had you been in the crowd that day, had you been listening as Jesus spoke to those very, very powerful Pharisees who were beside themselves already with rage, and we're going to be more so before, before it's all over, you would have thought that's not going to happen. That is, that city is not going to welcome Jesus of Nazareth as king. Because that's what he's saying. You'll not see me until you welcome me as your Messiah king, until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I said to you, had you been there, you'd have thought it's not going to happen. But it did happen. And I said, I think we can trace in the scriptures the steps, the very creative and careful steps. Remember, I, I took you to that verse in Matthew 10, where Jesus had said to his disciples, you're going in my name, and therefore you must be wise as serpents. Remember this? And I said, be careful. Understand that Jesus is living out a real human life, and that he has to make careful plans, and he has. All right, so now we're going to trace. But I said that some weeks after that, a messenger comes, the one whom you love is sick, and Jesus goes and raised Lazarus from the dead. And we tried to identify the very, very specific, and we're not making this up. This is all in John chapter 11. That number one, Jesus becomes a fugitive. Remember that? After the raising of Lazarus, the Sanhedrin gathers and says we need to put him to death if we don't. All men are going to believe on him, and the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. And therefore, remember John eleven fifty seven says that they put, they, they put out a, a bulletin, and they said, if anybody knows where he is. So, Jesus is a fugitive. The second thing we mentioned, this is all as a result of the raising of Lazarus, it is just a few weeks before the, the, the Passover, and uh, maybe not even that, not more than a few weeks, maybe days. But at any rate, the second result of that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead 
is that Jesus goes to a little village called Ephraim. Remember that? And we said that it's on the border. It's explained that way, that it's on the border between Samaria and, and Judea. And the, the Samaritans are much hated. It's a dangerous border. It's a hot border. I will give to you here quickly uh, the, uh, the location of the, uh, of the city of Ephraim. But the third thing, I said that there are three very important results as the raising of Lazarus. I didn't say it, John says it. And the first one is that Jesus fuses. The second one is Jesus goes with his disciples to a village called Ephraim and is sort of hiding until the Passover comes. And then the third one is that the whole city of Jerusalem is abuzz with what question? You remember? Will he come? Is he coming to the feast? Now all of that is huge as the setting of the scene. All right? There's Ephraim, but remember that to the north is Samaria. Samaria is a very dangerous territory, especially at feast seasons. All right? Now, the next event is that Jesus follows a strategic route. I don't know that there's another place in the scriptures, in the gospels, in these narratives, where we can, we can see the measure of, of cleverness in Jesus as we do here. This is remarkable. Go to, well, I give it to you here. I'm going to go quickly. It's Luke 17, 11. And I give it to you here in the King James because it is a good translation. Two things quickly. Number one, remember that we talked at the very beginning about how we have to harmonize the Gospels and about how at this time we only have Luke and John. And I like to say they're kind of doing the frickin' frack thing, you know, where one talks for a while and the other picks up his sentence, you know, almost. So John has Jesus going to Ephraim. Now, the next time John tells us anything, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. But Luke gives us a very important account, and he picks it up with Jesus at Ephraim. And he says in Luke 17, verse 11, that, as it says there, it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, now watch this, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. You know enough Bible geography now to to know that there's a problem here, right? Right? He starts out in Ephraim. He's only three or four miles north of Jerusalem. And yet he's going to Jerusalem and he passes through the midst of Samaria and then Galilee. So he's got Jerusalem in the rearview mirror, right? Now, I'll tell you something. A lot of Bible translations mess with this because they just, they're so off put by it. How can you, if you're on your way to Jerusalem from a little village just to the north, how can you pass through Samaria? Well... And you'll see things like pass between the coasts of. They're, they're, they're trying to make some sense of that. It, it says, and it's twice emphatic in the Greek, both by case ending and, and preposition. He passed right through the heart of Samaria and Galilee. All right, let's take it literally and let's see if we can see what he's doing. But let me remind you, the issue really in his life is he has to enter the city of Jerusalem. And he has to do it on a given day. And the most powerful men in all of Jewry are in charge of Jerusalem, and they have a price on his head. How is he going to get this done? Well, understand that Jesus grew up in Galilee. You remember in Luke chapter 2, in that story of how Jesus went up to Jerusalem at the Passover when he was 12, it says that his parents went up year by year. So he knew the habits of the Galilean Jews. And by the way, literally tens, probably I'm convinced, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would make their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The the, the roads would be clogged, it would become very, the the city would grow to several times its normal size. And, by the way, let me tell you one other thing, because it'll be important in a moment. What does Passover celebrate? You know that. 
What? The exodus from Egypt, right? So, at Passover, every Jewish heart is fondly remembering the story of how a covenant-keeping God proved himself strong by delivering them from an odious Gentile overlord. Well, guess what? There's another Gentile overlord, every bit as odious. And God still is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And you know what? They got a promise. They got the book of Daniel. And Daniel tells them that there are going to be four kingdoms in the day of the fourth kingdom. The stone cut out without hands is going to roll out of the, the, the mountain. Remember that? The Messiah is going to appear. So the point is, the Romans despise Passover because the Jews are trouble all year long. But at Passover, they're all thinking about God's power to deliver so it's a horribly, horribly incendiary moment in their history. All right, so at any rate, Jesus is ter- and, he, and Jesus knows they're out. Now, I'm going to give you some more geography. Again, I, there's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is in Judea, and uh, to the north is Samaria, and the north of that is Galilee. I think I've told you this before, but at this point in human history, and it's curious because it had only become true in the last hundred years, but... Many times more Jewish people were living up in Galilee than in Judea. And so, like I say, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, time out. Josephus, do we all know Josephus? The Roman historian who, he was Jewish and he, he became the, the, the official historian of things Jewish for the Romans. It's a long story and not a particularly pretty one. But now, Josephus is not Bible, okay? But he's a very good historian and he seems to be in this particular passage or section I'm about to cite, he seems to be very, very hard, working very hard at being exact. And he tells us that for the reasons that I just surveyed, the Romans were very skittish about Jerusalem at Passover. And they, they wanted to have some idea of what kind of strength of force they had to have in town. They wanted to know about how many Jews were coming up, how large the city was. Well, they had kind of a handy-dandy little thing they could use because the rabbis had decreed that no fewer than 10 and no more than 20 people could feast on, on, a, on a Passover lamb. So if they get, just demanded that the priests count the lambs, they would have some base figures. Does that make sense to you? In the year 60, now this is 27 years after Jesus dies, but in the year 60 AD, just to give you an idea, according to Josephus, they did. The Romans demanded that they count the lambs and there were over 200,000 lambs. That's a lot of blood being spilled. But that means that there are somewhere around 2 million people. Now, I'll tell you this, most historians downplay it because they can't imagine that it could be handled. But I'm not convinced. That's Josephus is working at. So, so clearly, my point is, by any standard, the city is, is hugely crowded at this time. And many of them are coming from Galilee. Now, watch, this is what's going to happen. You have all of these tens of thousands of Galilean Jews who are going to make their way down to Israel. And... Uh, Galilee is a large area up near the Sea of Galilee, but here's what I want you to... And there is a, 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 a very important valley, the most important valley on the face of the earth, honest to goodness. More history-shaping battles fought in this little valley than, uh, than, than any other place in the world, and it's called the Valley of Jezreel. Now, it's dominated on the south by a city called Megiddo, so sometimes it's called the Valley of Megiddo. There's been a lot of battles at Megiddo, Megiddo is a pass, and it's a strategic pass. All the caravans of the world practically have to pass through that pass. And uh, it's dominated by the city of Megiddo, and that's why there have been so many battles there. 
And that little city sits on a hill, and the Aramaic word for hill is Har. So it comes to us as Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. There's a battle to be fought there in the future. Now I say that just to make the point that that valley is Galilee. It's the southern portion of Galilee. And what would happen, and, and, and we know this from history, and we, it's reflected in the scriptures, and I think Jesus knew it well. Watch this. The, the Jewish people living up in the villages of Galilee, when it was as, as Passover approached, they would make their way down into that valley. And then they would make their way, and it was dangerous no matter what route they took, but they would make their way in large groups. And they weren't necessarily really formal, but you wouldn't just go alone. You'd, you'd, you'd make your way down the road and, uh, for protection. But there are two routes. And the one, now watch, I'm going to give it to you. The one just makes its way down a, a it's called the ridge route. Because there is a north, this is the way of the patriarchs, this is the road that you have to take if you're going to pass north and south in the hill country of Samaria, Ephraim, and Judea, and so on. And it's quite direct for, by the standards of that day, and in comparison to the alternate route, it was quite the easy. This is the route you'd like to take. But you see, the problem was, it passed right through Samaria. And Samaria was dangerous. So at almost every stage of, of first century history, uh, it wasn't available. You couldn't take this route, and so now there's another route. What are we going to call this route? This is the ridge. It's following the spiny ridge that goes right down the heart of the land. There's another route, and maybe I should tell you, do you know, are you familiar with this, the Sea of Galilee, and then the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. Here, the Sea of Galilee, then the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. That is the Jordan Rift. That rift, have you ever heard about the Rift Valley Academy down in, uh, in Africa? You've a missionary friend? Same rift, goes all the way down into Africa. That is the deepest fault line on the face of the earth. And uh, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level on its surface. And then the Dead Sea down here is 1,300 feet below sea level on its surface, and it's 1,200 feet deep. So this is the, the deepest cleft. This defines the geography of Israel. Now I say that just to make the point that there was another route that they might take called the Rift Route. Not the Ridge Route. The Ridge Route's the direct south. But the Rift Route, look, this valley right here that we talked about before, the Jezreel Valley, it's, it, it really is kind of shaped like an arrowhead, not quite as dramatically as I've stylized it here, but this is the Jezreel Valley. The shaft is the Harod Valley. Very, very important valley. This is where Gideon Spring is. This is where the Harod Spring is, where Gideon, uh, the judge, uh, you know, narrowed his men down. But what would happen is, again, they would, if the ridge route, and it normally was unavailable, it was too dangerous, and we know, I can prove to you, there's no doubt, this is the route that Jesus is going to take. Now watch this. This is the route they were taking this year. Because what they would do is they would go down the Harod Valley. And then they would cross the Jordan River, thus leaving Samaria, and I mean avoiding Samaria and getting into Perea, right? And then they would make their way down the rift, that's why it's called the Rift Route. And by the way, uh, this is an ancient highway called the King's Highway. This is a very well-traveled road, so this is very passable. But once they get down to Jericho, remember Jericho is just to the north of the, uh, of the, sea, uh, the Dead Sea. Uh, they're on the other side of the, Dead, uh, of the Jordan River. But they would reford the river and make their way up to Jerusalem. It's about half again as long. It's about 90 miles instead of 60 miles. It involves a really, really difficult climb. When I first studied in Israel... Uh, they took us out in kind of a half track and put us on a Roman road, and we walked about three miles up toward Jerusalem from, from actually from the inn, and oh, it's work. But, uh, 
By the way, remember Jesus talked about a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho? See, Jerusalem is up here in the hills, and Jericho is down here. Jerusalem is, well, you, you go over the Mount of Olives, that's 2,700 feet high. I tell you, that Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level, and it's about 18 miles. So you're going from 2,700 feet above sea level to 1,300 feet below sea level. It's just straight up. Going from Jerusalem, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're doing it. Now, so the point is that this trip is longer, and it's more arduous, but if, in fact, and the Samaritans love to think about this, that they had forced the Jews to make their way all the way around and so on. And the other thing is this over here is desert. Now, desert is always, it's, it's less of an issue now because of the Roman, the Pax Romana, and they arrested piracy. But still, you're always exposing yourself to danger. That's where the robbers live and so on. So you see where I'm taking you? Jesus knew that this is the way the Jews traveled when they made their way from Galilee to the Passover. Furthermore, uh, he knew that they traveled in, in, in large groups. All right, time out one other time. This will help you with Mary and Joseph in Luke 2. Remember it says that when they set out, they both thought him to be in the company. So you travel in several hundred, sometimes a couple, three hundred people, you know, just kind of making your way along. And then at night, you'd settle down as families and so on. So in that story, they're a day out. Like Stephen said, you know, they settle down that night and they say, we've lost the Messiah, this is no good. And so, you know, but they're a day out, you can't travel by night. So they have to wait till the next morning. I'm in Luke 2 now. They go back, and on the third day, they find Jesus in the, in the temple. So it's the, he knows that dynamic. That's what I'm saying. He knows that dynamic well. All right. So here's the strategy. It's really remarkable. The Bible says, I take you back to it, that Jesus is going to follow this remarkable strategy. He's in Ephraim. I've got it there. And he's going to pass through the heart. Now, by the way, I think I said to you before, that remarkably enough, Jesus earlier, just after, his, uh, uh, just after the, when he first went up to Galilee to minister in John chapter 4, he passed through Samaria. Remember that? He stopped and dealt with a woman at a well, and that woman became a believer, and then she told her, her townspeople, and they begged Jesus to stay. So Jesus has some standing in Samaria. It's not accidental. And now he could, he also has 12 big burly guys traveling with him, and so I think Jesus simply, and, and it's so clever, because the most powerful men on earth are trying to capture him. There's no place on earth where he's safer than in Samaria. They're not going to come near there. So what he does is, just as the Bible says, he makes his way, I think he leaves Ephraim, and he makes his way through the midst, first of all, of Samaria. And he makes his way up to this valley of Jezreel, which is Galilee. So he makes his way through the heart of Samaria and Galilee. Now here, at this point, interestingly enough, both Matthew and Mark pick up the story. And we have Jesus making his way with hundreds of people down toward Jerusalem. And so he makes his way... Let me, let me back up. I, I would submit to you... I, I like to think of it this way. And if you've been there, you can picture this, how the hills of Samaria fall off into the Jezreel Valley. And I think there was probably uh, this or that group of Passover pilgrims who had gathered in the Jezreel and now were making their way down the Herod, and as the Herod Valley. And as they, as they start, they look up to the Samaritan hills and they can just begin to espy a little gaggle of men. And pretty soon somebody goes, ooh, there are 13 of them. This could be trouble coming out of the hills of Samaria. 
And then somebody says, you know what? They're not dressed like Samaritans. They're dressed like Galileans. And then somebody else says, wait a minute. Isn't that the Nazarene? And sure enough, he comes and he falls in with this group. And we know this is the case because he's going to travel with them all through Matthew and Mark. And they're making their way. And guess what? So he falls in with this group of Passover pilgrims and does, in fact, make his way down through Perea and then crosses the river and makes his way up the backside of the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, here's the thing. All along the way, this is all in Matthew and Mark, he's doing miracles. This is when the ten lepers come to him. This is how we know that he went through Jericho, because this is when he encounters Bartimaeus. Remember in his friend in Jericho? It's on this trip. So we know he was taking this route. That's the only way you can go through Jericho. And, and not only is he doing spectacular miracles, but he's again and again, he's challenging the Pharisees. This is when he challenges their teaching on divorce. This is when he ta- challenges their teaching in, on, on, on giving and so on. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that's very fascinating here. He, this is when he, uh, uh, on this trip, on his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover, that in Jericho, he uh, sees little Zacchaeus in the tree and says, come down, I'm going to your house. I can't tell you what a buzz went through the crowd when he announced publicly he was going to the house of a publican for lunch. You know, all throughout the Bible, just a little extra. (laughs) Having a meal with someone is hugely significant, hugely significant. This was a culture that, that lived from harvest to harvest. Bread was always to be prized. And to share a meal, bread was life, and to share a meal with... And that's, that's reflected in the Old Testament. There was one very, very blessed offering. There are five basic offerings in the Old Testament Levitical system. One of them is called the peace offering. And the grand distinctive of that is that the, lamb, the animal was slain, part of it was, was consumed on the altar, and the rest, this is the only time it happens, the worshiper took home and ate. You were having lunch with God. That's exactly what's at stake. You had to have a sin offering first. So this whole picture of having, this is exactly why the Lord's Supper is so, so very important. But at any rate, having said it, the point is that when Jesus announces publicly, I am going to your house, a buzz, it would have, there are so many ways in which he's tweaking people and he's doing miracles and he's getting people excited. And I'm guessing if I were the next group back or the second group back and word got to me that the Nazarene was up there, I'd have hot-footed it up there. You know what I'm saying? I think probably the crowd was growing and there was greater and greater excitement. Does that make sense to you? So now think about what's happening. Jesus is headed up to uh, the, the feast of uh, Passover. Now, I mentioned that Luke and John are back and forth here. And Luke tells the story of how he set out. Matthew and Mark tell the story of the exciting things that happened along the way. John, in John 12, verse 1, says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now, I'm going to give you another map which is just a little tighter. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just outside of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem is bounded on the east by a very important hill, and you're familiar with it, called the Mount of Olives, a north-south hill that runs to the east of Jerusalem. And if you leave the city of Jerusalem and cross the, the valley, which is the Kidron, and go up on that mountain and start down, you go right to Jericho. But just on the backside of that mountain, on the southern reach of that mountain, that Mount of Olives, is Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem. Does that make sense to you? So here comes Jesus. I'm going to give you the same thing. Here's, here's Bethany, and uh, here's little uh, Ephraim, just north of Jerusalem. You can see it there. 
And again, same thing, Jesus passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, makes his way up into Galilee, and then I think joins in with one of these bands of Passover pilgrims. There's really no question about it because we, we have his travels. Makes his way down the Herod, across into Perea, reforged at Jericho. Now here's the thing. The Bible says that six days before the Passover, folks, the Passover is Thursday. Six days before the Passover is Friday. That's huge. So, we don't know how long, at least the better part of a week, Jesus has been traveling with this crowd. He has got them whipped into a pretty significant excitement, right? Doing miracles. It's Friday. What happens when the sun goes down on Friday? See, Shabbat begins. All of these people with whom Jesus is traveling, they, they want to get into the city. But Jesus, and he would have been very much the center of attention, I'm telling you, you can, you can follow this road today. You come up the road from Jericho, and just before you crest the hill, there's a little spur that goes off to the south. So picture Jesus with all these hundreds of people now, and he's very much the center of attention. But just as they're about, and there's great excitement as they're about to see the city of Jerusalem as they crest the Mount of Olives, it's dramatic. And, uh, and so now just before that, Jesus takes his 12 disciples and he waves goodbye to everybody and he sets off that road down to Bethany. And the Bible is explicit that he went to keep the Sabbath. That make sense to you? Now here's where I'm taking you. The crowd wants to go into Jerusalem, but Jesus is going to make his way just south a little ways toward Bethany. See, here's the thing. All right, now stay with me. The question before the house is, how is Jesus going to get into the city? How is he going to fulfill the promise that you'll not see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? And I think the Bible is quite clear that, first of all, by raising Lazarus and getting the city to pay him such heed and so on, they're all a Twitter about will he come. And then Jesus makes this very, very deliberate and, and, and strategic trip falling in with this band of Passover pilgrims, and I think counting his steps, because it's very important that they make the final ascent on Friday. And so sometime on Friday, probably hundreds if not thousands of people make their way into the city of Jerusalem. They've just watched Jesus make his way down to Bethany. i got to tell you one other thing here, real quickly. You know that... The rabbis throughout the course of, of Jewish history, and especially post-Christian, have been punctilious about, about, about defining specific restrictions, right? The Bible is rather explicit, and what I'm talking about here is primarily the Sabbath restriction. The Bible simply says, Leviticus and Exodus simply say that you're to honor the Sabbath and to do no work on the Sabbath. But it doesn't tell, tell you what work is. Well, have I mentioned this to you before, that they would cover their mirrors and so on? Did I mention that to you? On Friday to this day in an Orthodox home, the children will go and take little black cloth and hang it over all the mirrors in the, in the house. And the reason was because uh, they were fearful that a woman might forget it was the Sabbath, look in one of those mirrors, see a gray hair, and pluck it, and that would be reaping, and that would be a violation of the Sabbath. So, so he had all of these very, very careful rules. You could pick something up and carry it across the floor in a dirt floored house, but you couldn't drag because you'd leave a furrow and that'd be plowing. You couldn't wear false teeth, that'd be wearing a burden, all sorts of stuff. Well, a lot of that is fairly casual. But here's the thing. One of the most basic and one of the ones that they were the most zealous about is what's called a Sabbath day's journey. And, and I think there's some legitimacy to it. And the point was that they had decided, what they did is they calculated it 
on the basis of how much land an ox could plow in a day. And so if you had a field, how much land could he plow? And that basically was sort of the zone. And again, exactly how they calculated it, because it was about a mile and two-fifths. And, 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 and the point was not that he could you know, do a square mile and two-fifths, but linear. So, but but I got to tell you, the, 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 the restriction was not that you could walk a mile and two-fifths and then you had to sit down somewhere and wait for the sun to go down. The point was that it was a zone, and you could move around inside that zone at will. Now, this was so important that that the rabbis in every city would go outside in a walled city. They'd go to every, every gate, and they would follow the roads and mark with a little pile of stones. And so if you had never been to that city before, you would recognize the Sabbath zone markers. Does that make sense to you? And if you were outside the Sabbath zone when the sun went down on Friday, you couldn't go into the city. Does that make sense? But if you were inside the zone, you could move around freely. You got that? Now, I think that's hugely important because Bethany is about a quarter mile outside the Sabbath zone. So go back to this story. Here comes Jesus with all of these thousands of people, and they're excited, and they've been watching him do miracles and listening to his teaching and so on. It's Friday afternoon. They're anxious to get into the city. They go into the city, but before they do, they watch as Jesus takes his disciples and go off to Bethany. And then they walk just a little further, and they encounter the Sabbath zone marker. So they know that Jesus is outside the Sabbath zone. This is Friday afternoon. Folks, here's the point. On Friday afternoon, John 12, verse 1, Jesus arrived at Bethany, but we're clear, it's clear that he had been traveling with hundreds of people. Those people go into the city, and I believe that they are bearing a twofold message. And the first message is, he is coming. Remember, that's what everybody's standing around asking. Is he going to come? Will he come? And so they go into the city bearing this message. He is coming. We've been with him. You wouldn't believe it. He healed 10 blind men. He healed, or he healed 10 lepers. He healed the blind men. He, all this excitement. He is coming. But there's a second message, and that is he'll be here Sunday morning because he stopped in Bethany. And he's going to keep Shabbat in Bethany. So he'll not come in on Sabbath. Now, almost everybody you read about this remarkable event called the triumphal entry, stumbles in a couple of places. Number one, they wonder, how did Jesus get away with this? And number two, they again and again, they picture it as if Jesus rides into town, and much to his surprise, there are people there to welcome him, and he's kind of thinking, whoa, this is nice, who'd have thought this? Folks, Jesus orchestrated this. That's what I want you to see. He sent those hundreds of people into the town. Now, folks, think, this is Passover. As I said to you earlier, every Jewish heart is beating with thoughts of sedition. They are hungry to be out from under. Do you remember when, when Daniel describes the four beasts in Daniel 7, how he describes the fourth beast? Remember, the first one's a lion, the second one's a leopard, the third, no, the second one's a bear, the third one's a lion, and the fourth one is a monster with Iron jaws and iron claws, and it rips to shred its enemies. That's what Rome was, folks. Gibbon says they ran their empire like a well-ordered penitentiary. And the, and the Jews, A, were sick of the Romans. They hadn't been there long, but they were sick of them. And B, they had good reason to believe that it was time for a covenant-keeping Yahweh God to send a Messiah. Now here's the point. It's Passover. 
This Jesus has for over three years been going about the whole land doing miracles. Can you imagine that there's anybody who doesn't know somebody who's been touched and healed by this man? And you know very well that the Pharisaic leadership is angry and they're insisting that this man is an imposter. But for heaven's sake, you've had it up to here with Rome. He claims to be your Messiah. You're sick of it. You're sick of Rome. And now you hear that he's coming. And by the way, by the way, just a few days ago, not more than a couple of weeks ago, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And John 12 says that many people came that year to see Lazarus. Now, folks, I keep thinking, if you had to go to battle against a hideously powerful enemy, would it be an encouragement to follow somebody who could raise you from the dead? Would that give you a certain measure of abandon in this effort? You see what I'm saying? So my point is, this is what happens. Jesus, having all those weeks ago, said, you're not going to see me until you welcome me as king. Now he very, very carefully plans so that these hundreds of people go into the city. The city is, a, is, just, is, is absolutely abuzz with the question, is he going to come? Here are all these people. By the way, look at John 12 real quickly. In, in John's, and here's another place where, where people, well, it's the one I just mentioned. This, this verse causes so much conjecture and so on. In John 12, as John, the, the, the gospelist, uh, commences his telling of the triumphal entry, he says on verse, uh, John 12 and verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast. Now watch this. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And everybody says, how'd they hear? I'll tell you how they heard. Jesus sent these thousands of people into the city bearing that message. And that happens on Friday. So all day Saturday, the Sabbath, one family after the other. Have you heard? Have you heard? He's going to be here Sunday morning. Oh my goodness, he's in Bethany. He can only come down that road. Oh my goodness. And when Jesus does in fact on Sunday morning ride over the, 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 the brow of the hill, the Bible says in Matthew that as soon as he crested the hill, it's about a mile and a half up at the top of the hill, the road was lined deep with people. They were singing, they were dancing, they were rejoicing, they were throwing down their garments, they were welcoming him as a king. And by the way, what were they singing? Hosanna and blessed is he who come... What did Jesus say? You're not going to see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't an accident. That's what I want you to see. Jesus was wise as a serpent. Now, let me just tell you this real quickly. This is what I just said. I, I think Jesus very, very deliberately alerted the city to his coming. I heard, I'll tell you what, this really upsets me. I heard three very, very important New Testament scholars, and I'm not going to go any further, but they, they, it was on TV, and they were discussing this very issue. And they were struggling with this issue. Here you have this powerful Roman government. They have absolutely no room for pretender kings. And yet the, the city of Jerusalem welcomes Jesus as a king and there's no reprisal. How can this be? And their answer was, well, the Bible makes much of the excitement, but it was probably just a little handful of people off in a corner somewhere and it was never heard about. You can't get that out of the scriptures. But I'll go further than that. There's no making sense of this unless you understand that it was such a city-wide excitement that the Romans and the, and the Pharisees both were totally, their hands were tied. What are they going to do? The whole city erupts. That's the whole key to this thing. And if you understand that Jesus set it up that way, but, but uh, the, to go further, I want to say this, and, and I'm going to do it very quickly. I'm going to come back to Saturday evening. Let me just talk very quickly. Look, we're going to go through the, the, the days of the week. I am going to refer to Sunday 
as a day of messianic presentation. And what I mean by that is that this is the day, the most official, the most formal, the most dramatic, the most deliberate presentation of Jesus as Messiah. This is the day that the Lord has made. That's why I told you before, Jesus, when, he, when, when his enemies said, make your, your disciples quit, he said that the very stones would cry out because this is the day. There are three lines of Old Testament prophecy which come to pass here. And uh, matter of fact, I'll just give it to you on the, on the notes. Let me do this very quickly, and with this we'll be done so we can pick up with Monday and Tuesday next week. But I say, first of all, now think with me on this. There are these remarkable, this, this day, and by the way, it was March 29th, 33 A.D. On that day, March 29th, 33 A.D., uh, Jesus rode into the city on, on a Sunday morning, and he was welcomed as king dramatically by the whole city. By the way, Matthew says that the people inside the city, as they heard and I think felt the commotion, they said the whole city is moved with his coming. I think they could feel the tremor in the earth. I think they were with all the running about and dancing. And if you follow the narrative, it seems like all he does on this day is make his way down the hill. The Bible says he looked into the temple and he went back to Bethany. I think it took him the whole day to navigate his way through these massive crowds who had come to welcome him as king. And on this day, there are three lines of Old Testament prophetic fulfillment. The first, I, I, I mentioned, is that the manner of the Messiah's coming had been foretold in Zechariah 9. I'm not going to take you there, but it's a remarkable verse. And Zechariah says, Behold, O Zion, your king comes unto you, what? Meek and lowly riding upon a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And then he says this, oh, I should spend time with this, but I won't. But just and having salvation, the great mystery of the New Testament. The great, you, New Covenant believers, are so blessed because you understand how God can be at once just and the justifier of them that believe. And the answer is in Christ. And so the Old Testament in this one place kind of gives us a hint. This one is coming, with the un, will make you understand how God can offer salvation and pronounce guilty men as absolutely righteous without compromising his character, and the answer is in Christ. Bless God. Now, the point is, Zechariah had said, Behold, your king comes to you meek and lowly. And he says, riding upon a donkey, and in many minds, I know, Many people have the notion that that's the humble part, the lowly part, you know, riding on a lowly donkey. In point of fact, a donkey is a royal steed in Eastern cultures. And I'll tell you why. If you're on a horse, you got trouble. The horse is a military animal. The donkey's not much good in a fight, right? Best I know, unless you're fighting with him, then he's pretty good. But, but my point is, that's not a military steed. So if you're riding on a donkey, you're in charge. And, so, and, and kings, when Absalom, you remember, usurped the kingdom from his father, one of the first things he did was ride king... David's donkey through the streets and so on. So the point is, the donkey's not the part. What is it? What, in what sense did Jesus enter the city meek and lonely? Folks, it's, it's staggering. There is absolutely nothing of military might or power. There's no pomp. There's no retinue. There's no, he just rides in as a lowly Galilean peasant with 12 people. And, and, and I think the only way he kind of puts a, a, a royal signature on the event is the donkey. I think the donkey is the way that he kind of takes a royal prerogative to himself. But the fact of the matter is, the whole city welcomes him as king. It's staggering. It's exactly what Zechariah had prophesied. And the fact that it comes to pass, that whole city welcomes him as king, is, is really staggering. Now the second thing, and I haven't got time to develop this. Stephen has in the past. But 
not only the manner, but I think the moment of his coming had, had, had been foretold in Daniel. And I give you this chart. I'm not going to spend any time with it. I'm going to confuse you horribly. But, but the fact is that 500 years earlier, Daniel had been given an absolutely remarkable prophecy. And that prophecy was that from a going forth of a certain commandment, that's the commandment in Nehemiah 2, to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, on to Messiah the Prince would be exactly when you, when, you, when you do the exegesis, 483 years. Now, I'm not going to go through it. I'd be, I'd be happy to another time. I will say this. If you're at all interested in this, find Harold Honer's, not hard to find, a man named Harold Honer, H-O-E-H-N-E-R, wrote a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and his last chapter in that book just nails this, absolutely nails it. But I'm going to leave that alone. The point is, you do the exegesis in Daniel 9, And what it is saying is that a clock begins ticking on Nisan 1, 444 B.C., and it will click for 483 years of 360 days each. And it says, from the going forth of that commandment, on to Messiah the Prince. If you go back to Nisan 1, 444 B.C., and count ahead 173,880 days, which is exactly what it prophesies, it comes to March 29th. 33 AD, the day Jesus rode into the city. And it's interesting that as he rides into the city, he weeps over the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew what belonged to you on this thy day. And I believe the very moment, and this is why it's so strategic that Jesus get into the city in spite of the fact that the whole, the leadership of the city has set itself on his arrest. But most importantly, perhaps, and I got to spend just two minutes with this and then we're done. Not only the, the manner, he came meek and lowly, and the, the moment, I think, the very day had been explicitly prophesied. Oh, by the way, I've got to tell you something. I just came across this. I was so excited. I read a book, and I always tell everybody about the books I read. But uh, uh, Michael Byrd, his, his remarkable little book, but he, he says, and I, I should have come across this a long time ago, Josephus says that the revolt in 66 AD that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem was generated primarily because, and this is what Josephus says, I looked it up, because of an ambiguous oracle in the Hebrew scriptures which spoke of their being exalted to the place of rule over the world at this season. Doesn't identify, it's got to be Daniel 9. It's got to be Daniel 9. The point of which is that those Jewish people would have been, we, they must have been, doing their arithmetic and trying to figure it out. And so it's hugely significant that Jesus rode into the city on the day that that's fulfilled. But now watch this real quickly. Look. I mentioned to you before that that Psalm 118, which taught them how to respond, how to welcome Messiah when he appeared, tells them to cry out, Hoshana, save now. Accept him as your Savior. Now, Listen, Jesus, Jesus claimed to be Israel's Messiah. Now get this, the messianic hope germinates in Genesis 3. The first time you have the breath of a Savior who would come to deliver you, who would be the seed of the woman and who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver you, from the bondage which you have plunged yourself into by reason of, of your sin, the, the, the first hope is in Genesis 3, right? It's what we call the proto-evangelium. Now, stay with me. What's at issue? 
when, in fact, that marvelous, marvelous promise is given in Genesis 3, I'd love to talk to you about it, but when that promise is given, what's at stake? There's one thing at stake, and that is sin. That is death, bondage. That's what Adam and Eve... I always think you and I know something of what it is to, to, to grow careless about our relationship to the Lord and have a heavy heart because, because our, our relationship has grown cold and we can remember it against the times when, when, we were, when our relationship was fresh. Adam and Eve knew what it was to walk in the cool of the day with God. They had an absolutely perfect, open relationship with him. They enjoyed his presence. And now they have plunged themselves into sin. And I would submit to you, there is nothing, nothing in the world gripping their heart other than how can we have deliverance from this. So here's my point. Jesus claimed to be Messiah. That hope is born in Genesis 3. Now, as the Old Testament unfolds, we learn a lot about Messiah. And, we, and, and there are other dimensions of that saving activity. As a matter of fact, as the Old Testament unfolds, what happens is God makes a covenant relationship with a nation. And as part of that covenant, he says, if you continue in sin, I'm going to raise up a Gentile nation to trouble you. And so now, as you think about that coming Messiah, he's not only coming as a savior from sin, but he's going to be a savior from a Gentile overlord. There's no doubt about that. It's legitimate. But seminal, basic, most primitive to the messianic hope is salvation from sin. I, if you go through Jesus' ministry, you'll discover that he made two claims concerning himself. He claimed to be a Messiah, he claimed to be God come in the flesh. I've had students say to me, well, why didn't he talk about being a, a savior from sin? Good heavens, that's what Messiah does. Is there a political dimension to his deliverance? Yes, but that's entirely secondary. Does that make sense to you? So they were taught when Messiah appears to welcome him as savior, save now they cry save now but i would submit to you that they were thinking only of salvation from rome because you see here's the issue that generation of jewish people was painfully dramatically daily reminded of the fact that they were powerless to deliver themselves from rome but the pharisees had taught them that they had the capacity to deliver themselves from sin by rigorous obedience to the law. So do they cry out, save now? Yes, I think it's unavailing. Because they have a heart for deliverance from Rome, but not from sin. Does that make sense to you? All right, this is a huge day. I'm going to send you home with a question, and we're going to answer this question next week. I hope it keeps you up all week long. And very simply, and I've kind of given you a little of it, but really the dramatic, the, the, the way the week unfolds is, 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 is it addresses this question. Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem uh, to everybody's amazement since his, but his own, having orchestrated this very carefully. The whole city explodes in excitement. It is waiting to greet him as king and so on. And it's one of the most exciting scenes in all of the scriptures as Jesus is welcomed as king by the entire city of Jerusalem. So here's my question. Given Sunday, why Friday? That same city is going to be demanding his crucifixion. The people who are on Sunday are saying, save now, be our king, on Friday are saying, we'll not have this man to reign over us, crucify him. Given Sunday, why Friday? I think, I think the narrative gives us a huge amount of help in understanding that. That makes sense to you? All right, you've been very patient, it's late. We're going to pretend we've covered Sunday, okay? <laughs> That's all we're going to do. We'll start with Monday next time. 
All right, let me have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this, this narrative. We thank you for uh, your Son, our Savior, that one who, though he was God, very God, thought it not something to be held on to at all costs, to be given the regard and the worship due him as God, but emptied himself and became uh, a servant. And Father, as we trace this remarkable narrative, as he makes his way methodically toward the cross, Father, uh, I pray that we might be reminded anew uh, again and again of the bottomless depth of our Savior's love.